So yesterday, we left David still in hiding and on the run from King Saul, who essentially, due to the jealousy, wanted David dead. And this, of course, was 1 Samuel 24. And today we find ourselves in the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and David is about to be crowned king over all Israel. Needless to say, there's been a lot happening in the intervening 11 chapters, and in a short while, I'll just take us through some of the highlights. However, our focus is now entirely on David. You may not know this, but there were over 60 chapters, in 62 whole chapters in the Bible dedicated to David. And aside from Jesus, David, of course, has to be one of the most important historical characters in the Bible. And we really shouldn't underestimate that fact. Uh, to be honest, if you hadn't spotted already, David does get a lot of mentions. What with the Star of David, City of David, House of David, the Line of David, and of course the Root of David. And in fact, it is clear that the genealogy of David's line is incredibly important to God. And the New Testament starts with that long list of names leading to Christ. And, and right there in the list at the 14th generation, of course, we get David. And chapter 7 in 2 Samuel, which we come across today, is one of the most pivotal passages in the whole Bible, where God reveals his plans for his kingdom. Uh, but more about that in a minute. Yesterday, Graham used a psalm to give us some insight into how David felt when he was in a cave. And of course, in addition to the some 62 chapters about David, uh, we did have all the psalms of David. And to, so to set the scene this morning... I thought it would be helpful to read a psalm, although this is not a psalm of David, but a psalm of Asaph. And it gives us more of an insight of David's importance in the eyes of God. So let's turn to Psalm 78 and starting at verse 67. Allow me to read. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. God had chosen David, and I love that phrase, he shepherded them with integrity of heart. God knows that David is a man after his heart, a phrase that's quoted in both the Old and New Testaments. He would do what God needs him to do, doesn't, of course, make him perfect. And believe me, we'll start to get to that next week when we head into chapter 11. 2 Samuel, where we are now, can be divided into three sections. The first section, chapters 1 through 10, in which our chapters fall this morning, talk mainly about David's successes. 11 and 12 talk about some of his key mistakes. And then there's a whole bunch of troubles onwards from chapter 13. So yesterday we had David in a cave and today he's being crowned king. How did we get there and what do the intervening 11 chapters cover? Well, in short, the struggles continue between David and Saul 
There's a second opportunity that David has to kill Saul while he is asleep, but instead he takes his spear and water jug to prove the point to Abner, the chief of Saul's army, who should have been protecting Saul but was in a deep sleep. That principle that Graham picked up on yesterday about the Lord's anointed continues to play a part in David's integrity being maintained in this regard. Slowly things get more and more difficult for Saul. Clearly the Lord is not with him and he resorts to desperate methods, consulting of all things a medium to raise Samuel, which just makes matters worse. The Philistines in the end get the better of Saul and almost kill him to the point where he attempts to take his own life during a battle, although even that proves difficult and a young man in his army has to assist and finish him off. That brings us to the end of 1 Samuel, and as we now go into 2 Samuel, a point that Graham also mentioned yesterday, it was this very young man that finished him off that brings news of Saul's death to David, who is still working to this Lord's anointed principle and says that the young man has done wrong and orders him struck down. Now with Saul gone, you may think that David would throw a banquet. Ten years of this crazy hide-and-seek game is now over. But that's not David's style. And in fact, the rest of chapter one is dedicated to a lament for King Saul. David literally weeping over the very person who had rejected David. And it's a striking similarity here with the greater son of David, Jesus, who when entering the city, weeps over her which we picked up on a few weeks ago when we were looking at the passages in Palm Sunday. It should be noted that in addition to Saul, three of his sons were also killed with him on Mount Gilboa, including Jonathan, who is one of David's best friends. That takes us to chapter two. David, who is now directed to Hebron by God, is anointed king not over Israel, but over the house of Judah. This is the second of three anointings or coronations uh, three, you say? Well, remember, he was originally anointed as the chosen king by Samuel with this horn of oil when Jesse is asked to bring out his sons. And David is almost forgotten about uh, the runt of the litter. This second time, however, it's only a public coronation as king over one of the tribes, the house of Judah in the south. And the other tribes to the north have been given another king. How did that happen? Well, Abner the son of Ner that David had taunted with the, um, the jug and the spear and commander of Saul's army, realizing his boss was dead and his career prospects had taken a bit of a bad turn, takes one of Saul's other sons, Ishbosheth, and makes him king over the 11 tribes. This starts a civil war in Israel that will go on for a further seven years. And this conflict would Joab, the commander of David's army on one side, and Abner, the commander of Saul's army on the other. We pick up in chapter three, where we note these words. The house of David grew stronger and stronger, whilst the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Abner finally realizes he's not going to win and negotiates a handover, which almost went well, except Joab murders Abner in revenge, as Abner had previously killed Joab's brother. Anyway... On to chapter four, and Ishbosheth, on hearing the news, has lost courage. This eventually results in two leaders of Saul's um, son's raiding parties, Rechab and Barna, deciding to kill Ishbosheth while he is sleeping, and they take his head back to David. This, of course, doesn't please David, so he ordered that they be killed. So finally, we get to chapter 
5. And David can become king over Israel. He's 30 years old, and for the third time, he gets this anointing, this coronation. What is one of the first things he does? Well, he does what he's good at. He decides, I'm going to conquer some land. He's got his eyes set on Jerusalem, although it's not called Jerusalem. It's called Jabus, as it's inhabited by a people called the Jebusites. This was an area that Joshua never took when he took the land that God had promised. And it wasn't just David's plan to extend the kingdom of Israel. It was, in fact, God's plan too. He is the right man for the job. He has the drive, he sees the goal, understands the importance of the city, a city on a hill. It is important for two strategic reasons. Firstly, being on a hill, it's easy to defend. Valleys on both sides. And the Jebusites themselves know this. Even the lame and the blind could defend it, they say. And secondly, it's got a good water source known as the Gihon Spring. This is the main source of water which feeds the pool of Siloam, a place where Jesus, of course, heals a man. That comes in via the Siloam Tunnel, which has been built in the time of Hezekiah. So how was David planning to get into the city that even the lame and the blind could defend? Well, the answer was the water shaft, which also exists to this day. Joab climbs up and defeats the lame and the blind. David is doing great. We're still in this era of David's successes. And he's playing to his strengths. So next on to the Philistines. However, it's so important here to understand that this is David, a man after God's own heart. And it's clear that David consults the Lord and is working within the will of God. And the success is delivered into David's hands as is the, because the Lord is going ahead of him. He has to wait to hear the marching in the tops of the poplar trees. Chapter 6, and David turns his attention to the Ark of the Covenant. And here we get an example of the right thing done in the wrong way. For some 40 years, the Ark has been out of the tabernacle, and it was time to restore it to the right place. So off to fetch it from Abinadab, where it has been for some 20 years. A simple task, which includes just getting it to the top of the hill into Jerusalem. So surely the easiest way to do it is to stick it on a cart. After all, this did work for the Philistines. Sadly, David's forgotten how important this box is. It's holy, very holy. Comes with a, very, a, a set of very clear instructions, only to be moved by a specific tribe, the Levites, and then a specific family line in that tribe, and then on foot. The poles and the hoops built into the side of the ark had to be used. Unfortunately, the oxen stumbled, the ark's about to fall, and what appears to be a simple trigger reaction by Isaiah, he touches the ark and causes the Lord's anger to burn, and he is struck down. David is then afraid of the Lord, so operations are put on hold, and it ends up in Obed-Edom's house for three months, which, as it turned out, wasn't a bad thing for him and his family. David's heart was right. He'd forgotten to follow God's instructions. And it's important to understand that with God, he wants us to do the right thing. And there are no man-made shortcuts. The right thing done the wrong way is still wrong. Three months later then, it's done properly. With a lot of singing, dancing, considerable number of bulls and fattened calves slaughtered. David is happy, although 
not so pleased with one of his wives. I've got time to go on to the wives, but that's a story in itself. Finally, we get to chapter seven. And this, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most pivotal, pivotal passages in the whole Bible. It details one of God's promises to David, probably the most important promise of all, because it's about our salvation. David looks at his palace and turns to the prophet Nathan and says, you know, it's time to build a house for God. The ark is still in a tent. Surely we can do better than that. It's like David says to God, I'm going to build you a house. But God says, did I ask you for a house? Nathan, in the first instance, sees all the favor that David has from God and says, go ahead. The Lord is with you. But that night, the Lord says, no. God, in fact, turns it around and says, no, not you, David. I have a plan, but not you. Of course, eventually a temple will be built and there will be a fulfillment when Solomon builds it. But this promise has a dual fulfillment in that there is both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There is the temple, the house of God, and then there is the kingdom where he will establish a throne forever in the line of David when the greater son of David, Jesus, will sit on the throne. Who will do it? God will do it. Just looking back over that passage, I wondered what David would say if he was here with us today and if he had the chance to look over these chapters with us. And I think he might say things like this. God has a plan. It's best to stick to that plan. Let's not mess with anointed people. Bad things can happen. Listen carefully when God gives detailed instructions. Only do what God wants you to do. There are no man-made shortcuts. When God says, I will, he means it. God's promises are true. Sometimes when all is going well, that can be when we're at our most vulnerable. We end this chapter with an amazing prayer of David. Everything is looking great. But when we are most prosperous, then we can be at our most vulnerable. And next week we will see some of David's mistakes when we head into chapter 11.